So good to be back out with everyone this evening. Thank you for coming out and being with us tonight. I hope and pray that the songs have been edifying and encouraging and that this service will be beneficial to all of us this evening. And so tonight uh, we will be talking about uh, this idea of are we working with or against one another? Are we pulling together when times are, when we're in crunch time, when things are really kind of suspect, if you will, and, and, and deciding that, you know what, we need to come together as a group in unity and, and strive to make things better? Or do we grow apart? Uh, that happens a lot where <clears throat> people uh, under times of stress, um, duress, times of war, right? And we're going to have a little brief history lesson tonight. In the War of 1812, you had a major general by the name of Andrew Jackson, which most of you recognize that name. He served as a major general in the Tennessee militia, and this was before he was obviously president of the United States, well, he had a little problem there with his militia. The soldiers began to argue and bicker and fight amongst themselves. And so he had to kind of bring them all to a halt and bring them together and say, look, guys, and actually what he said was and what's noted in history is, gentlemen, let's remember the enemy is over there. But the problem was, was that this militia, they had come together. They were supposed to be battling the enemy. But instead of battling the enemy, they were fighting amongst themselves and biting and devouring one another. Galatians 5.15, which we'll turn to eventually. And they were essentially harming themselves. They weren't going to help each other. They weren't going to benefit from anything that they were doing. The enemy's over there. But they were treating one another as their own enemies. And so this reminder by Andrew Jackson for his troops ought to be a sobering reminder for us today. Many of us today have forgotten who our enemy is and where the enemy is. And so let's think about unity for just a moment. Let's think about faith. Let's think about evangelism. The only way we can succeed in preaching the gospel is if we pull together. And in pulling together... We pray for one another, we support one another, we believe in each other, and we have a genuine love for one another. If we don't pull together and come together and work together, we cannot be successful in preaching the gospel and evangelizing to the lost because the lost won't see the benefit. What's the benefit of me coming and being baptized if you all hate each other? I mean, think about it. There's no rhyme, there's no reason. Well, you just come together because you're just checking off the box of your little to-do list, see? 
And see, that's going back to that law-depending attitude. If we depend upon the law, well, then we're not depending and trusting in God. If we're not depending and trusting in God, then, our, then we don't have true biblical faith. See? And I would suggest to you that nowhere here on earth is unity more needed than in the local church. You cannot tell me one place where unity is more needed than within a local church. And unfortunately, it's not always present. Now, I'm not saying that that's indicative of here, but maybe in other places. And nowhere on earth, let's continue this thought, is there a more noble task, a more important or universal mission to be accomplished, and that's preaching the gospel, saving souls, If you can tell me one mission that's more important than that, I'll get down out of this pulpit and I'll quit. That's how serious I take evangelism. The saving of souls is the most important thing that we as mankind can ever do. We save ourselves through Jesus Christ, through His blood, and then we point others to the direction of heaven, down the straight and narrow path. Uh, If you would, turn with me to John chapter 13 for just a moment. I did put it up on the board, but if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, John 13. In verse 12, we'll read verse 12 and then we'll drop down to verse 34 and 35. So when he had washed their feet... And taking his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? And this is Jesus' response to him washing his disciples' feet. Him essentially say, this was kind of a pre-sacrifice of his sacrifice. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. He willingly took off his garments became that of a servant, which he had already done, right? If you go over to uh, Philippians, Philippians 2, I should have had it marked. Philippians 2 and verse 7, but emptied himself, right? This is when he left heaven. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He dressed himself down, he left heaven and became a man. And even while here on this earth, he took off his garments and washed the feet, the nasty feet of his disciples. They didn't have carpets and, and hardwood floors like we do. They had dirt. And if it was raining, then guess what? They had mud. Do you know what I have done to you? And then look at this verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the one way above all other traits 
that the world can know that we are truly disciples of Christ. We are most like Him when we love one another. When we sacrifice and remove ourselves out of the equation and say, I'm going to do this to help my fellow man, to love my fellow sister in Christ. But how sad it is that many Christians are not known for their love for one another. In fact, what you might end up seeing is is that many Christians are hypercritical of one another and they will undermine each other. Every chance and opportunity they get, they're going to be hypercritical. They're going to undermine one another. They're just looking for something. And for, for whatever reason, I don't know. But they don't have the attitude toward each other as they ought to have. And I want us to understand something in regards to unity before we start reading more into it. And that in regards to unity, if you would uh, turn over to John 17. When Jesus prayed for unity, He didn't pray for unity in the sense that I need to hold the same opinions that you hold. Or that you need to hold the same opinions that I hold. That wasn't his view. John 17 verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And when the world sees that we are hypercritical, towards one another, that we undermine one another, that we talk about each other behind our backs. They say, why do I want to be a part of that? Where's the change? Where's the love? Jesus never indicated that we have to agree on every single issue. Romans 14 and 15 deals with that. But over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, we have this passage. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Now you think about this. This is how we act when we want our opinions, when we want our liberties respected and hindered to. And if you don't do that, then guess what? You're not my friend. You're not really a Christian if you don't do X, Y, and Z. One, two, three. It's a promotion of selfishness. Can you say that you're working with one another if your opinions are far more important to you than the commandments of God? Right? We have a passage for that. Back in Matthew 15, Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your your disciples break the tradition of the elders? This is that whole biting and devouring one another. 
for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? See? And so when we behave in this manner, we're no better than animals. Animals only have a concern for themselves. That's just a reality. I don't care how well you train a dog, a dog is always going to be a dog. And you put a bowl down, that dog can be as friendly as can be. And some dogs will be just as friendly as can be. You put that bowl down, they become a savage animal. And that dog will always be that way. And it'll never know any different. Same thing with cats or any other animal. They don't have the mental capacity to have the thoughts and cares and concerns that we do. Which is why when God created everything, who did he appoint to be over the earth? He created mankind to be over all the animals, the plants, the trees, over everything. See? Let's continue on and let's see what the Apostle Paul says further about unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10... He says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. See? So unity is expected. It's required. But how far do we take that expectation and requirement? Do we take it past liberties and opinions or do we keep it before liberties and opinions, right? Those, and again, those are issues that it would take me all night to preach out of Romans 14, so we're just not going to do that this evening. We're looking more at the uh, promotional passages of unity. And we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, and live in peace. Now you just think about the Corinthian brethren for just a moment and you tell me or try to tell me that they all agreed on every minute detail. We know they didn't. They struggled mightily with a lot of different issues. They were plagued with sin. And yet there's still a glimmer of hope. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. In who? In God. Yes, they still had the presence of God among them. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. That comes when you decide to work together. But when you start deciding, oh, I just can't work with this person, and I'm just going to go against, right? Biting and devouring each other, or not heeding to the... Um, notice of gentlemen, the enemy is over there. But sometimes we don't see that. And we lose sight of that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete. This is Paul's asking them. Right? He's making this request. 
to these brethren at, at Philippi. Work together. You're going to be tempted. You are going to struggle. You're going to be persecuted against. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Let's go over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul here gives an instance of the condition that he's in. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. How do you do that? How do you walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called? Living in unity. Working to coming together in the times of struggle With all humility and gentleness and with patience and showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord and one faith and one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So what Paul's speaking of here, not just in Philippians 2 and even in Ephesians chapter 4, of a deep abiding internal unity with one another. That support that we should have for one another. The love that we should have for one another. We should pray for each other. Let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. And we're going to read verse 22 through chapter 2 and verse 3. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word which, we, which was preached to you. And therefore... Putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now I want us to think of something about unity before we dive into this text and start looking at unity. For one, in regards to unity, we don't want to be responsible for harboring the bad attitudes and the bad behavior of making unity virtually impossible. When we get ourselves in the way where we make unnecessary things necessary, right? Let me give you an easy example. And we know it through the scriptures there in Acts 15. 
the Judaizing teachers. Well, in order to be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. We know better than that. Paul, writing to the Galatians, said the same thing. That's not true. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be a true Christian. But I also want us to understand that unity does not mean that we ignore all differences in matters of liberty and opinions. There are things that are not matters of salvation. Those things are not opinions. Let's look at chapter, at chapter 1, verse 22. Let's look at it closely. He says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love for the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Unity requires obedience. And it's obedience to what? The gospel. Obedience to the truth. And something like that, we cannot, we cannot bend the rules. We cannot say, okay, well, you have your baptism and I have my baptism. And for example, what I'm saying is, right, we baptize when we immerse people in water. We take people, we dunk them down into the water, their bodies go completely underwater, we pull them back up. In practice of they go down, Dead in sin, while they're under the water and they come back up, they come back up dead to sin. And their sins have been washed away. Now that's the baptism we teach because that's the baptism that you find in the New Testament. See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Both went down into the water and he baptized him. Acts chapter 8, dealing with the Ethiopian eunuch. But others may say, oh, well... They sprinkled water on my forehead. Never find that in the New Testament. That's not matter of opinion. That's a matter of fact. Or some people, they'll have a cup and they'll pour water over their head. Now, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, was He sprinkled into the Jordan or was He poured into the Jordan? Or which was it? You tell me. He went down into the water. And why on earth people think that this is optional, I can't tell you. But it's because they do not desire nor think it's important to have a sense of unity. So unity requires obedience. This is something that we cannot compromise in. We cannot compromise the truth in regards to salvation. We can compromise my truth and your truth in regards to eating meat or, or being vegan or vegetarian and things of that nature. But we cannot compromise the truth in regards to the gospel, in regards to how we worship, in regards to how we serve God and how we live for Him. Those are not optional. What I preached about this morning in regards to Bearing false witness. That is not optional. We must not bear false witness. So since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls. 
Unity requires the purity of the soul. The sanctification of the soul. It makes one pure. Clean of heart. And unity requires a love for the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Now let's go over to chapter 2. And he tells us, Therefore putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Right? I should have used this verse, that, that verse this morning, shouldn't I? So we put these things aside, and then he says, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now this is a metaphor for everybody, for all believers. Not literally just newborn babes in Christ. This is for, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You could be, could be a Christian for 90 years if you live that long. And this is still true for you. Look at this. Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Okay, why is this important? What do babies long for? They long for milk. And I promise you, if Sarah would have stayed out here with, with little Levi, he would have let you know real quick, I'm hungry, feed me. And change my diaper. But he would let you know. All babies have that natural desire for milk. We're supposed to long for the milk of the word. Why? Because it's beneficial to us. It's nourishment for us. It satisfies our hunger for God, see? So like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. I thought these people were already saved. That's right. If you don't long for the milk of the word, guess what? Your salvation is not sure. Because you won't be longing for, you won't have that desire for God. You, You have no desire to learn of Him. To come to know Him. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's bring this all together. Philippians 3, verse 18 and 19. This goes back to, are we coming together or are we coming apart? Where do we stand? Now, here Paul gives us uh, some things to think about. For many walk, okay? So people, they, here's how they live, right? And remember, how we live is not optional. Now, people want to make it optional, But it's not optional. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now you think about that. Can any enemy of the cross of Christ go to heaven who remains an enemy? Now I'm not saying that an enemy of the cross can't come to obedience to the truth and purify their souls. I'm not saying that. But if they are an enemy of the cross of Christ and they remain an enemy of the cross of Christ, can that person be saved? Whose end is what? Destruction. Paul tells us, no, they cannot be saved. Because they will not choose to serve God. They will choose rather to serve themselves. Who God, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly Things. 
This is why taking carnal things and thinking about it, 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 it's serious. It's serious business. We should not take worldly and fleshly influences lightly. People were all up in arms over, uh, and I don't even remember exactly what it was, but it was some award show, and uh, I'm trying to remember the artist's name. I just I don't listen to modern art, artists anymore. They're all garbage. I think it was Sam Smith, and he did some performance of devil worship, and people were shocked by it. Why are you shocked by it? You should not be shocked by anything coming out of Hollywood. Why are we watching that garbage? Well, it's entertainment. Entertainment to who? I don't find it funny. I don't find it entertaining. The music certainly isn't that good. Our minds are not set on spiritual and heavenly things, and that's a problem. But finally, I want to finish the lesson up with this thought because, again, I want you to remember that the enemy is over there somewhere. The enemy's not in here. And so when you're, when you're feeling frustrated with someone in this room, maybe it's just a misunderstanding. Maybe you just need to go and talk to that person. There's no harm. There's no, nobody's going to cry foul. We cry foul and there's harm done when we view that the enemy's in this room and we attack and bite and devour one another. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 and 9 Peter gives us this warning, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. You know, little house cats might be cute. But I don't know if you know this about house cats. They have natural instincts of, if they could kill you, they would. Okay? Like, that's legitimate. They would. So this instance of your de- the devil, your adversary, prowling around like a roaring lion. That's a very serious thing because, guess what, lions, they're, they're not there to tickle you. They're not there to snuggle with you and, and, and curl up into a fuzzy little ball and purr all nice and cute. And that's not what a lion's to do. They're there seeking food. Resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And when we, come, when we fail to come together in unity, we're failing each other, we're failing the church, we're failing Christ, and ultimately we're failing and standing in the way of getting the gospel message out to others. Because again, all they're going to see is, why do I want to be a part of that? You people are just as hateful as you say that I am. You just think about that. Our enemy is somewhere else. It's not in this room.
We want you to be a part of the fold. We want you to be a part of this group. We want you to be a member of the body of Christ. And so if you are not, tonight is your chance and your opportunity. Because the, I mean, the gift's already been given, right? It's already been wrapped and it's already been opened. It's, you have it. It's available to you. It's a matter of you being willing to swallow your pride and the guilt and the shame, if it's overtaking you, then you come forward and you let go of that guilt and shame and you give it to God. You confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. You repent of your sins and you be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of your sins. You do that this evening and never look back. If you've already done that, but you've looked back, right? Remember Lot's wife? She looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. Don't allow that to happen to you. Don't allow the coming of Christ or the coming of the unfortunate circumstance of possible physical death strike your front door and then you not have the opportunity to make things right. You're here tonight and you're subject to our public invitation, whether it be putting Christ on in baptism or if you need the prayers of the congregation. If we can help you this evening, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing the invitation song.